It's June 24th, 2018, and this is episode 371 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, and welcome to episode 371 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. My name is Adam B. Levine, and on today's show, we're putting in the work and looking beyond the headlines. A couple of announcements. The show is hiring one or two researchers to help us improve the quality of the work that we're doing here. First, we're looking for a technical correspondent who already spends lots of time preferably looking at and understanding not just the world of Bitcoin improvement proposals, but also the context behind them on the developer mailing list, IRC, and so on. We're preparing to do a series of episodes specifically focused on that entire ecosystem and many specific BIPs, so we're looking for a guide to help us find our way. On the other hand, if you're a Bitcoin news hound who's always digging for the story behind the story, we'd like to speak to you too. Pay is negotiable, and in Bitcoin, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com for more information. So, for most of today's episode, we're joined by Stephen Pally, a lawyer in the space who's been following the increasingly thorny area of cryptocurrency lawsuits. We talk Ethereum, Ripple, Tezos, Titanium, Sour Grapes, and more. Next week, the whole gang will be back together, but we end today's show with a little recent Q&A from Andreas Antonopoulos. But first, we're putting in the work and really listening to this recent speech given by William Hinman, director at the SEC's Division of Corporate Finance. I've been seeing very specific parts of this speech quoted to suggest that Ethereum isn't currently secured in the eyes of the SEC, and others have used that given as a way to suggest that many tokens which followed the Ethereum model also are not. In reality, things are a little more complex than that. We kick things off today with my reading of William Hinman's speech titled, When Howie Met Gary. Enjoy the show. This speech is slightly cut down for time. I will begin by describing what I often see. Promoters, in order to raise money to develop networks on which digital assets will operate, often sell the tokens or coins rather than sell shares, issue notes, or obtain bank financing. But in many cases, the economic substance is the same as a conventional securities offering. Funds are raised with the expectation that promoters will build their system and investors can earn a return on the instrument, usually by selling their token on the secondary market. Once the promoters create something of value with the proceeds, and the value of the digital enterprise increases. When we see that kind of economic transaction, it's easy to apply the Supreme Court's investment contract test, first announced in SEC v. Howey. That test requires an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit derived from the efforts of others. And it's important to reflect on the facts of Howey. A hotel operator sold interests in a citrus grove to its guests and claimed it was selling real estate, not securities. While the transaction was recorded as a real estate transaction, It also included a service contract to cultivate and harvest oranges. The purchasers could have arranged for the service of the groves themselves, but in fact most were passive, relying on the efforts of Howie and the Hills Services Incorporated for a return. In articulating the test for an investment contract, the Supreme Court stressed, form is disregarded for substance and emphasis is placed upon economic reality, end quote. So the purported real estate purchase was found to be an investment contract. An investment in orange groves was, in these circumstances, an investment in a security. Just as in Howie, tokens and coins are often touted as assets that have a use in their own right, coupled with a promise that the assets will be cultivated in a way that will cause them to grow in value, to be sold later at a profit. And as in Howie, 
Where interest in the groves were sold to hotel guests, not farmers, tokens and coins typically are sold to a wide audience rather than to persons who are likely to use them on the network. In the ICOs I have seen, overwhelmingly, promoters tout their ability to create an innovative application of blockchain technology. Like in Howie, the investors are passive, marketing efforts are rarely narrowly targeted to token users, and typically at the outset, the business model and very viability of the application is still uncertain. The purchaser usually has no choice but to rely on the efforts of the promoter to build a network and make the enterprise a success. At that stage, the purchase of a token looks a lot like a bet on the success of the enterprise, and not the purchase of something used to exchange for goods or services on a network. Strictly speaking, the token, or coin, or whatever the digital information packet is called, all by itself is not a security, just as the orange groves in Howie were not. Central to determining whether a security is being sold is how it is being sold and the reasonable expectations of purchasers. When someone buys a housing unit to live in, it's probably not a security. But under certain circumstances, the same asset can be offered and sold in a way that causes investors to have a reasonable expectation of profit based on the efforts of others. For example, if the housing unit is offered with a management contract or other services, it can be a security. Similarly, when a certificate of deposit, which is normally exempt from being treated as a security, is sold as part of a program organized by a broker who offers retail investors promises of liquidity and the potential to profit from changes in interest rates, the Gary Plastic case teaches us that the instrument can be part of an investment contract that is a security. The same reasoning applies to digital assets. The digital asset by itself is simply code, but the way it's sold as part of an investment to non-users by promoters to develop the enterprise can be, and in that context most often is, a security, because it evidences an investment contract. And regulating these transactions as securities transactions makes sense. The impetus of the Securities Act is to remove the information asymmetry between promoters and investors. In a public distribution, the Securities Act prescribes the information investors need to make an informed investment decision, and the promoter is liable for material misstatements in the offering materials. These are important safeguards, and they're appropriate for most ICOs. The disclosures required under the federal securities laws nicely complement the Howey investment contract element about the efforts of others. As an investor, the success of the enterprise and the ability to realize a profit on the investment turns on the efforts of the third party. So, learning material information about the third party, its background, financing, plans, financial stake, and so forth, is a prerequisite to making an informed investment decision. Without a regulatory framework that promotes disclosure of what the third party alone knows of these topics and the risks associated with the venture, investors will be uninformed and are at risk. But this also points the way to when a digital asset transaction may no longer represent a security offering. If the network on which the token or coin is to function is sufficiently decentralized, where purchasers would no longer reasonably expect a person or group to carry out the essential managerial or entrepreneurial efforts, the asset may not represent an investment contract. Moreover, when the efforts of third parties are no longer a key factor for determining the enterprise's success, material information asymmetries recede. As a network becomes truly decentralized, the ability to identify an issuer or promoter to make the requisite disclosures becomes difficult and less meaningful. And so, when I look at Bitcoin today, I do not see a central third party whose efforts are a key determining factor in the enterprise. The network on which Bitcoin functions is operational and appears to have been decentralized for some time, perhaps from inception. Applying the disclosure regime of the federal securities law to the 
offer and resale of Bitcoin would seem to add little value. And putting aside the fundraising that accompanied the creation of Ether, based on my understanding of the present state of Ether, the Ethereum network, and its decentralized structure, current offers and sales of Ether are not securities transactions. And as with Bitcoin, applying the disclosure regime of the federal securities laws to current transactions in Ether would seem to add little value. Over time, there may be other sufficiently decentralized networks and systems where regulating the tokens or coins that function on them as securities may not be required. And of course, there will continue to be systems that rely on central actors whose efforts are key to the success of the enterprises. In those cases, applications of the securities laws protect the investors who purchase the tokens or coins. I'd like to emphasize that the analysis of whether something is a security is not static and does not strictly adhere to the instrument. Even digital assets with utility that function solely as a means of exchange in decentralized networks could be packaged and sold as an investment strategy that can be a security. If a promoter were to place Bitcoin in a fund or trust and sell interests, it would create a new security. Similarly, investment contracts can be made out of virtually any asset, including virtual assets, provided the investor is reasonably expecting profits from the promoter's efforts. Let me emphasize an earlier point. Simply labeling a digital asset a utility token does not turn the asset into something that is not a security. I recognize that the Supreme Court has acknowledged that if someone is purchasing an asset for consumption only, it is likely not a security. But the economic substance of the transaction always determines the legal analysis, not the labels. The oranges in Howie had utility. Or in my favorite example, the commission warned in the late 1960s about investment contracts sold in the form of whiskey warehouse receipts. Promoters sold the receipts to U.S. investors to finance the aging and blending process of Scotch whiskey. The whiskey was real, and for some had exquisite utility. But Howie was not selling oranges, and the warehouse receipts promoters were not selling whiskey for consumption. They were selling investments, and the purchasers were expecting a return on the promoters' efforts. What are some of the factors to consider in assessing whether a digital asset is offered as a security contract and is thus a security? Primarily consider whether a third party, be it a person, entity, or coordinated group of actors, drives the expectation of a return. That question will always depend on the particular facts and circumstances, and this list is illustrative, not exhaustive. 1. If there is a person or group that has sponsored or promoted the creation and sale of a digital asset, the efforts of whom play a significant role in the development and maintenance of the asset and its potential increase in value. 2. Has this person or group retained a stake or other interest in the digital asset such that it would be motivated to expend efforts to cause an increase in value in the digital asset? Would purchasers reasonably believe such efforts will be undertaken and may result in a return on their investment in the digital asset? 3. Has the promoter raised an amount of funds in excess of what may be needed to establish a functional network? And if so, has it indicated how those funds will be used to support the value of the token or to increase the value of the enterprise? Does the promoter continue to expend funds from proceeds or operations to enhance the functionality or value of the systems within which the tokens operate? 4. Are purchasers investing, that is, seeking a return? In that regard, is the instrument marketed and sold to the general public instead of specifically to potential users of the network for a price that reasonably correlates with the market value of the good or service in the network? 5. Does application of Securities Act protections make sense? Is there a person or entity others are relying on that plays a key role in the profit-making of the enterprise, 
such that disclosures of their activities and plans would be important to investors. Do information asymmetries exist between the promoters and potential purchasers and investors in the digital asset? And six, do persons or entities other than the promoter exercise governance rights or meaningful influence? While these factors are important in analyzing the role of any third party, there are contractual or technical ways to structure digital assets so that they function more like a consumer item and less like a security. Again, we would look at the economic substance of the transaction, but promoters and their counsel should consider these and other possible features. This list is not intended to be exhaustive, and by no means do I believe each and every one of these factors needs to be present to establish a case that a token is not being offered as a security. 1. Is token creation commensurate with meeting the needs of users, or, rather, with feeding speculation? 2. Are independent actors setting the price, or is the promoter supporting the secondary market for the asset or otherwise influencing trade? 3. Is it clear that the primary motivation for purchasing the digital asset is for personal use or consumption, as compared to investment? Have purchasers made representations as to their consumptive as opposed to their investment intent? Are the tokens available in increments that correlate with a consumptive versus investment intent? 4. Are the tokens distributed in ways to meet users' needs? For example, can the tokens be held or transferred only in amounts that correspond to a purchaser's expected use? Are there built-in incentives that compel using the token promptly on the network, such as having the token degrade in value over time, or can the tokens be held for extended periods of investment? Is the asset marketed and distributed to potential users or the general public? 6. Are the assets dispersed across a diverse user base or concentrated in the hands of a few that can exert influence over the application? And 7. Is the application fully functional or in the early stages of development? These are exciting legal times, and I'm pleased to be part of the process that can help promoters of this new technology and their counsel navigate and comply with federal securities laws. Thank you. If you go back to the Ethereum token sale, like what was that four years ago, more than four years ago at this point, it required a decent amount of technical expertise to, you had to be able to get Bitcoin, right? You had to be able to set up a private wallet. I can see if you read what Hinman says, he's basically saying something like Ether is not currently a security. We look at current state. He's also saying this doesn't mean that it maybe wasn't a securities offering at the time. I wonder if you can extrapolate from that and basically say, and it was so esoteric technically that maybe if you go back far enough in time, although maybe strictly construed, we could say registration was required, we're, we're not going to, uh, we're going to exercise some discretion. I don't think that's necessarily the wrong result. I mean, a lot of law and, and uh, enforcement and prosecution when you go into, into the criminal realm it involves discretion. Um, reaching fair and equitable results and using your resources in an intelligent way. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. Today I'm speaking with Stephen Pally, a lawyer who is not your lawyer or my lawyer, but who has been reading and commenting on document dumps from uh, many of the very lawyerly lawsuits related to some of the ICOs that have come out in the last couple of years. Stephen, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
So we kind of jumped right into it. Uh, I'd like to back up a little bit and talk about you for a second. How did you first come across Bitcoin or cryptocurrency and kind of broadly, what is your opinion on the topic? So my origin story, I've been practicing law. I've been at it for about 20 years now. And um, I had a very traditional litigation disputes trial practice for a long time. But as a kid, I taught myself to program and I've always been, I wouldn't say a geek necessarily, but I've always been interested in technology. And I was a not the greatest programmer in the world, but I you know, taught myself to code as a kid. Before I went to law school, I was working on a PhD, and I, this was back in the day. Um, this is actually um, when to access the World Wide Web, you use links. I don't know if you remember that. You may be too young. <laughs> Before my but, time. Yeah, yeah. It was not graphical. So, like, I had the first browser, and I was reading Ted Nelson, and I was going to do my dissertation on hypertext and um, hypercard. And anyway, so, you know, I had kids and started practicing law, and I, some of that receded. But here's how I just kind of discovered uh, Bitcoin. About five or six years ago, maybe five years ago, I was working on a, settling a lawsuit. There's a dynamic that you have in litigation, which you see over and over again, which is death by a thousand cuts in negotiation. Everybody knows what their bottom line is, but nobody can get there. You, you go up five, you know, $5,000, they come down $5,000. Meanwhile, the meter's running. It's very expensive. But you know, you talk to the other lawyer, you know the case can settle somewhere in a mid-range. It's just that neither side can jump, right? I can't go to my bottom line. You can't go to your bottom line because we don't trust each other. Now, trust, right? Um, so I realized I, was, I had this situation in a case in federal court. Both sides hated each other. I, both the other lawyer and I knew the case could settle for a specific amount, but we couldn't go to our bottom lines because our clients hated each other. And I was reading about neuroscience and um, behavioral psychology, and I realized it was a trust problem, and I came up with this idea that I thought I invented, which was we'll have a neutral third party compare numbers, and if there was a match, the case would settle, and lo and behold, it settled, and then I decided there should be software. It was so cool. So I ended up uh, leaving my law firm, uh, creating a, a technology startup, not really knowing what the heck I was doing, um, and along the way, for a variety of reasons, I had to learn how to sort of modern programming skills, so I taught myself basically programming. I learned um, Ruby, Ruby on Rails, learned some database programming, Postgres, and built something that was kind of cool. Um, I realized like ultimately I was, there was still a man in the middle, right? There was still somebody holding the data and I didn't want to do that. Hmm. And I actually discovered, I think I discovered Ripple first and then I discovered Bitcoin. I was looking for basically a way to have a trustless programmable escrow. And I stumbled upon Bitcoin and then I learned about um, Ethereum before the sale smart contracts, which aren't really smarter contracts. That was one of the first things that puzzled me. I looked at it. I was like, this is so cool, right? Programmable. And then I was like, but they're not contracts. Right. What the hell are these people doing? And what interested me and what still interests me, what I still think is the fundamentally cool value proposition of Bitcoin, and maybe it's because of, I'm a lawyer, right? And I'm, the, I'm somebody who settles disputes. The idea that you can create a trustless programmable escrow, programmable money, I think is incredibly cool, incredibly value and very useful for lawyers. And I don't think we've seen a lot of it. We've seen interesting implementations in the transactional space. We haven't seen too much of it from a disputes resolution perspective um, for a bunch of reasons. Um, you need, in order to build things to resolve disputes, you have to understand something about code and you also have to understand something about disputes. Hasn't been a lot of work in that space. On the one side, 
lawyers use words in right. very specific detail-oriented ways to create, you know, essentially code <laughs> yep. that right. then is executed using sort of manual systems that we call the justice system or, you know, civil law, things like that. Uh, and on the other hand, you've got developers who basically are doing exactly the same thing, except it's uh, automatically executed through the use of compilers and the various languages right. and stuff like that. So I increasingly over the last year have come to think about lawyers and developers as two sides of sort of the same coin in terms of yeah. these very specific codifications. Uh, so it's interesting that you kind of went down both rabbit holes on that side. Um, that's also a very interesting application. So getting back into it, I have a number of topics that uh, I'm interested in, in sort of getting into with you, various projects and the various lawsuits associated with them. But we kind of started off this conversation talking about Ethereum and talking about the recent speech given by the, I believe, Director of Corporate Finance or something yep. like that. Yeah, that's, that's at, at the SEC. So immediately before you know this interview, people actually just listened to a slightly abridged version of that talk. So they have some decent context. So why don't we just talk about that? You mentioned Ripple in kind of your origin story as well. The news has been broadly interpreted, I've seen from this speech, to say that Ethereum is not a security, but Ripple might be. And the difference between Ethereum and Ripple seemed to be about degrees rather than absolutes. And I'm curious, do you agree with that based on this interpretation? And what, what do you think of kind of this whole thing? So I think this was very carefully worded. Mr. Clayton, in comments maybe yesterday or the day before, specifically said that um, Bitcoin and Ether are not securities, right? So basically echoing Hinman's speech. The vehicle is not the relevant question. It's exactly. the it's the facts around it and how yes. and you know who's actually pushing this thing forward. And that's sort of always been the elephant in the room with Ripple is that Ripple has a lot of control over the work that they're doing. Well, you and, look at the first factor that the, that uh, Mr. Hinman asks the question. He says, "Is there a person or group that has sponsored or promoted the creation and sale of the digital assets? Asset, the efforts of whom play significant role in the development and maintenance of the asset and potential increase in value." It's not the only question, but uh, you know, it looks like a significant one. Looking at that question, really, what's the difference between Ripple and Ethereum? I, from what I can tell from the outside looking in on this, it seems like they just did a better job of having more than one organization and sort of more than one operation that they funded using the money that they did from their sale. Whereas Ripple basically just has that single monolithic entity. I believe they did split into like, they have a Ripple Labs and they have, you know, a couple of other organizations, but they're all sort of controlled by the same broad uh, ecosystem, right? Whereas it seems like individual founders within Ethereum went off and sort of created their own things. Like, is, is that really the distinction though? It may be on a case-by-case -case basis. A factor here that's not mentioned, maybe this isn't something that's relevant, but it seems like you've got to take into account market impact and distribution of the token. I, it wouldn't seem reasonable to me to treat all of the consumers who currently hold Ether as engaging in a securities transaction when they move their Ether. And I think there might have been a significant negative impact on retail investors if that's the way, if, you know, if the SEC had said something different. Certainly. I don't know. I'd, would that be the same for Ripple? Well, Is it widely distributed? Would there be as much harm? Ripple has an enormous supply. It was one of the kind of the early tokens out there, and they differentiated right. themselves by having a very large supply of which they held the majority, either in founder shares or in 
sort of corporate holdbacks that they used for a long time to distribute to development meetings, things like that. But still, we're years in, and I, I think, I don't know the exact percentage, but I think that they still have, you know, more than 25% of the total supply at the corporate level, which they've committed to give away in a variety of fashions. Ethereum did the same thing. They held back 10%, I think, and uh, awarded that to founders. Basically, it was a factor based on how much was raised in the crowd sale, a certain percentage of additional tokens were created and given to founders, but it wasn't close to the 50 plus percent that we saw in the early days of Ripple. It feels like many, if not all, of the same factors apply in this case, but it's the degree to which they were done, right? Well, there's, a, there's another, like, look at question five. Does application of the Securities Act protections make sense? Is there a person or entity others are relying on that plays a key role in the profit making of the enterprise, such that disclosure of their activities and plans would be important to investors? The informational asymmetries exist between the promoters and potential purchasers investors in the digital asset. Now, whether that was true um, four years ago, I'm not sure that that's true with respect to Ethereum now. So I think that with regards to information asymmetries, that's definitely true. Anytime there's any sort of partnership announcement, those partnerships are negotiated in advance. The companies that are involved with that many times are the very large companies out there like Consensus, you know, which again are started by Ethereum founders using parts of uh, you know, monies made from the, the Ethereum stuff. So again, like I feel like it is true in both cases. It's just the degree to which yeah. true, you know, it's, it's true about XRP so much more obviously than it is in this slightly larger network of companies. But ultimately, the difference doesn't seem to be very tangible to me. Was there also, as a practical matter, a difference in lobbying? Coin Center obviously did an estimable job pushing a particular perspective. I don't know if they did the same thing for Ripple. I don't think Ripple gets a lot of love from that sort of thing. Again, like Ripple yeah. just has always sort of been viewed as a project unto itself. And it has, you know, open source contributors occasionally and things like that. But I think that it like from an ecosystem perspective, it didn't develop in the same way that Ethereum has. Yeah, uh, certainly. And so, again, like but that's that's my point, though, is that sure. the facts of, of it aren't actually any different. It's just the degree to which A, they were successful in the case of building that and B, the degree to which they you know, had uh, founders go their separate ways and start their own projects rather than all remaining in one company and starting you know, and sure. being monolithic. But yeah. fundamentally, again, like, I, like it's this sort of, uh, I don't wanna say arbitrary, but it almost feels arbitrary, right? It's like there are more people who are interested in Ethereum, so therefore it's easier to make the argument that Ethereum should be exempted from this because the amount of harm that is done by any sort of enforcement action is there. But it's, that's just as true for anybody who has bought XRP. You know, like maybe that's not as vocal or as sort of uh, promoting a group. Anyways, we can move on from this. I, I like I'm, that's what I've been trying to square with that. Uh, no, it's 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 my fascinating. Point. I mean, the, the frustrating thing, particularly for technical people, with the law is um, software is deterministic, right? It's a state machine. The law is not deterministic, or it's deterministic within broader bounds. You know, the notion of discretion is very different than the notion of, uh, of something that's binary. And, you know, what he says in another place, I'd like to emphasize that the analysis of whether something is a security is not static. It does not strictly adhere to the instrument. As a programmer, putting on my programming hat, that's incredibly frustrating, right? How do you code that? How do you code something that is non-deterministic? How do you make decisions with a rule set that is not like that? And you see when people like going to EOS and the EOS Constitution, for people who don't understand how discretion works 
in a sort of non-software system and try and draft constitutions, which are really very different than software, you see the problems that you have. EasyDNS is a domain name provider and registrar that shares our values. Flexibility, free speech, and control without lock-in. EasyDNS helps you meet your individual needs as the Swiss Army Knife for domain names since 1998. Outspoken defenders of privacy, due process, and great service, the folks at EasyDNS are long-term, enthusiastic supporters of the Bitcoin movement as well as this program. Please support our sponsor and head over to EasyDNS.com where you can handle all your domain needs and pay with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, or Ethereum. So when you're thinking about domains or hosting, think EasyDNS.com. So Tezos was one of sort of the most funded projects out there. And certainly uh, kind of in yeah. the earlier days of the ICO boom, it was like the big project that everybody <laughs> was very questioning about unless you had bought into it, in which case you really liked it. <laughs> right. So um, they've really struggled to launch their token. And there have been a number of lawsuits that have come up. Can you kind of give us a high level overview of what's happening with the Tezos project and lawsuits? With the lawsuits, there is a consolidated class action in federal court in California in the Northern District. There is a parallel uh, piece of state court litigation that was uh, separated from the consolidated class action. I believe that there is a class action pending in Florida. Uh, I haven't checked on that recently. And basically, they're you know consumer fraud, securities fraud, class action. That's sort of the, the gravamen of the complaints. So people uh, are angry that they invested in, into this ICO and then it hasn't delivered the token yet. Is that about it? Yeah, that's basically it in a nutshell. I, I'm skeptical that if tokens had been delivered nine months ago that these class actions would have gone anywhere. I don't know. I suppose it's, it's possible, but it seems like it, that would have been, um, why would you do that, right? Broadly speaking, are you seeing any trends in like, is it mostly people just who are upset that they bought something and then it hasn't appreciated in value or is there actual meat on any of the bones? Think about this, setting aside whether or not this was actually a securities offering that should have had a, that where there should have been registration. I have a hard time, like if you go to a website and you give somebody a bunch of your crypto and it says in five different places, that this is a contribution and there's no guarantee that you're going to get anything. Even if there was a wink and a nod and like the sort of implicit understanding was that you were going to get something. If you don't get something, I'm not, maybe I'm not incredibly sympathetic. Maybe as a matter of equity, your claims are somehow weakened or cheapened. So that's item number one. If you talk to class action lawyers too, what you'll hear from some folks, in many cases it's actually been difficult to find plaintiffs because people have made money. Tezzy's may be issued sometime in the next month or two. Something's mm -hmm. been launched recently. So the question is, as long as you go through AML KYC, which is an interesting, um, an interesting wrinkle, if you get Tezzy's and they're tradable or exchangeable for more than you paid for them, where's your damage, right? You could, under U.S. securities law, you might have a, still have a claim for rescission. You might still want to rescind your transaction and get back your contribution, but you know, why would you, if you could get more than you, like if it three X or five X, why would you do that necessarily? If this thing launches and people get their tokens, I, 
I'm not sure what the point of the class actions is. It doesn't mean that um, if there's maybe a parallel enforcement action or investigation, I don't see that. I don't see why it would necessarily go away. There may still be trouble, but from a litigation standpoint, where's the harm? There, there are good plaintiff's class action firms involved in the Tezos litigation, by the way. If you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you're doing class action work, you, you do a very careful economic analysis because you don't get paid unless you win. So I'm sure they've thought these things through. I just don't know what the practical answer is. Um, and I've been struggling with that. Yeah. It, uh, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting about how crazy things have, have gotten with sort of ICO raises and uh, is just how much money is being raised by projects that are so early in their process. And one of the, th I mean, so like on the one hand, it's like, oh man, they're going to waste all that money. But then on the other hand, how long does it take to waste a hundred million dollars? I mean, like, it or seems like, like, billion. yeah, right. Exactly. Like, you know, at, at a certain point, there's so much buffer built into this that unless they are absolutely criminal in their misspending of those funds, like these projects are going to last five, six, 10 years, something like that. And, you know, like it's, it's hard to want to bet against something like that. So that's kind of the other that I come to when I'm looking at something like Tezos and it's, it's like, well, given how much money that they have, you know, like they're going to fight this, right? Like they're going to just spend money fighting this and they can make this an incredibly expensive process and effectively what they're doing is they're hurting the potential for the project to actually deliver. So if they think that it's a complete fraud and will never deliver and they're just going to waste the money, then, you know, maybe it makes sense uh, to do this. I guess it makes sense to do this while they still have the money to go after. But I mean, is, is that, it feels like it might be buyer's remorse, you know? Are you familiar with the uh, titanium? Did you, you know about that project? I am vaguely familiar with it, but you can go over the sort of high level. Yeah, so I don't think there's a private lawsuit at this point. If there is, I haven't seen it, but there was a, an SEC enforcement action. I want to say the token is called the BAR token, so it's titanium BAR. Yeah. Um, and the SEC basically, there was a website, and the website said on it that, you know, the company had relationships with like 30 different uh, businesses. Oh, um, yeah, I read this complaint, yeah, and it was yeah. all complete nonsense. <laughs> yeah, so basically what the SEC did was they filed a – they sought an injunction and asset freeze. They, I think they did it under seal initially, asked for the appointment of a receiver. And in support of all of that, they filed like 30 declarations from all of these big companies, which basically said, no, <laughs> we don't have these relationships. From a you know, marshalling resources standpoint, if I'm the SEC, I'm going to, I'm going to you know, publicly say we expect everyone to comply with all of the requirements of the securities laws. And personally, I think that that's correct and you should do that. But I'm going to probably, as far as resources go, I'm going to look at, you know, basically, in my view, I'm going to be looking at things that are um, obvious misstatements, frauds, misrepresentations. You know, what they did was very meticulous. And they went and they got all of the interviews that the person, uh, this, the promoter had had on, you know, shows like this. They uh, rip a copy of the recording. They have it transcribed. All that stuff was submitted to the court. They got the guy's uh, bank accounts, his uh, account with Coinbase, showed all the transfers that were made, showed how some of the money was used to pay off a personal line of credit, which may or may not be appropriate. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there had been a, a loan to the corporation. I don't know. But they laid out what in their position was um, securities fraud and in forensic detail got a receiver appointed, Joe Dewey at uh, Holland and Knight, very accomplished, uh, quite a good lawyer, and um, took it down. I, I don't... I look at something like Tezos, whether or not they made mistakes along the way, whether or not I personally think that presenting this was a contribution, 
data didn't make sense, what, whether or not I, I agree with some of the, the judgment calls they've made, it, it's not, it doesn't appear to be, there's nothing about it that looks like there's an obvious fraud. It doesn't look like money is being used for flat out improper purposes. You might challenge the, um, the propriety of the business arrangement the founders have with the foundation that they set up, but it's, I think that was disclosed. So I yeah, think that was it, disclosed. <laughs> it was it was disclosed, and you know, if you put in you know five thousand bucks in Bitcoin, and you read their white paper and you saw that they were going to you know buy a buy a country and you don't have your tokens yet, you, it's not like you didn't see that up front, right? It's not like you didn't see it was going to be a contribution. It's different than I think you have to sort of as an initial cut separate between those types of violations. You mentioned in uh, one of your prior answers that you know it's hard to find uh, people to litigate against some of these groups because they've made money off of it. Yeah, um, like ether. Like if you were in the ether, uh, you know, if you bought ether at fifty cents or a buck, like you might technically have a claim. If it's not, you might be barred by statute of limitations. But even if you weren't, like, would you? Why would you rescind the transaction and get less money? Well, but we've actually seen things get weird, right? When you're talking sure. about cryptocurrencies, because yeah, there's sure. the cryptocurrency value and then there's the dollar value underlying right. that. And those choices don't necessarily always mesh well together. So there was uh, a, a recent case uh, on uh, the CTR token, right? Yeah. Where they yeah, sold yeah. it for a dollar profit, yep. but they were suing the project because they had actually yep. taken a loss relative to the amount of ether. So the I mean, court like, said no. Yeah, right. Court said sure. no. So, uh, so like that, that seems to be, uh, a problem then if you're looking for plaintiffs, I mean, like, how do these things get started? Like, are there law firms out there actually looking for plaintiffs to go after these various projects at this point, because they're, you know, doing the math kind of what's your feeling? Yeah, sure. There are law firms, uh, there are class action firms who see, uh, the significant money that's been raised in the space and their securities violations. And yeah, they look for plaintiffs and there are a variety of ways you can find plaintiffs. Sometimes Sometimes class representatives come to you. Sometimes um, there, is a, there are certain types of marketing, SEO that people do to, to find plaintiffs. But I think for a profitable project, even if there is an underlying uh, securities, securities law violation, it, you may have a hard time finding private plaintiffs because you know no economic damage, no incentive to sue is the issue. Now, if the right. market completely tanks, you could see people going after projects that weren't outright frauds, but that didn't comply with registration requirements. Right. Just trying to get their money back, that. basically. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I have no idea what the market is or is not going to do. Um, I do, it's not really my place. I mean, I'm more of a, a layperson here. I do, the, the, the longer um, I see Bitcoin and Ether in front of and sort of accepted by institutions, the more feels to me like they will have a sort of lasting uh, commercial utility and value. How important are precedents in, you know, these cases that are, are out there right now, right? We haven't really seen too much of this stuff actually get settled in, you know, the court of law. So like, are these precedents important one way or another? Are they important if, you know, they find in favor of the people who are going after the ICOs? Like, yes. quantify that for us. <laughs> How is it important? I'm a U.S. lawyer. I can't speak to how law works uh, anywhere else. And I always like to point out to folks that there are, you know, there are 180, 181 other, co other countries in the world, each of which have political subdivisions, which have their own laws. So I don't want to suggest that the law of anywhere else isn't 
isn't equally as important to people who live in those jurisdictions. But in the U.S., common law country, precedent is, uh, is very important uh, for judges. What you do if you're a, a lawyer, I mean, I have, I'm doing research right now on something. I go into Lexis or Westlaw and I do a search. You know, if I search for Bitcoin, I think I come up with um, 25 cases now. And I might just skim through all of them to see what sort of precedent there is. The way that you persuade judges is you say, um, you know, there are cases, you know, there's a statute, there's a law that addresses this, and judges that have looked at this issue have said, blah, and you should follow that court's precedent too. It's a little more complicated than that because just because a judge in, say, the Northern District of California has said something doesn't mean that a judge in the Southern District of New York is obliged to follow them. They may not, the precedent may be persuasive, but not necessarily binding. You know, ultimately, you have trial courts, so let's just focus on federal law, and you have federal uh, trial courts that reach conclusions about things, and then those things come to courts of appeal, and the courts of appeals may end up having a split. You ultimately don't have a resolution of that unless it, until it gets to the Supreme Court, which incidentally, I, you may have seen this, the Supreme Court first mentioned a Bitcoin in a Supreme Court opinion yesterday in a dissent by Justice Breyer, not on crypto itself, but it was in a case involving... Um, application of uh, tax law to stock options issued under the Railroad Employee mm. Retirement Act. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, es- esoteric. But the question, uh, the question the court was asking was, what's money right. for purposes of that statute uh, and, and more generally? And the, the majority said it's um, stock options aren't money under the statute. And the minority said they are too. And, you know, Money shouldn't be, uh, we need to have a more uh, flexible notion of money. And then Justice Breyer says something towards the fact that, you know, someday people might get paid their salaries in Bitcoin. Another first. So, uh, Stephen, I really appreciate your time chatting with us about sort of the overall landscape and some of these specific issues. My pleasure, man. One of the ideas that uh, you've been tossing around that I thought was really interesting and I've always thought was a really good idea uh, is the idea of bringing insurance into the, into the blockchain space and making it so that just like your bank account is insured up to a certain amount of money, it's possible to do the same thing with Bitcoin. I have yep. several stories where family members have either you know, had their wallets like hacked during the early days, uh, you know, back when that was a thing and you know, there wasn't multi-signature and stuff like that, to people just you know, losing stuff in you know, like a house fire or something like that. And these are all sure. things that under normal circumstances, insurance would be able to cover, but because crypto is so weird or just new, Talk to us about insurance. Like, could that actually happen for Bitcoin? Do you have an expectation of when it could happen? I think it can happen. I think it should happen. And from a scaling purpose, it needs to happen. Uh, incidentally, a, a little pitch if you don't mind. If, if you or anyone, anyone who's listening is going to be in New York in July or DC in August, I'm doing a 90-minute seminar uh, with two of my insurance. I'm an insurance lawyer. That's um, sort of the main part of my practice. Two of my insurance coverage partners on, on precisely this topic. Send me a note. Let me know if you're interested. I'll see if I it's, uh, We don't have a lot of space, but I'm happy to include people. There are two ways I look at the insurance issue. One is sort of insurability of private keys and of crypto generally. The other is what can you use blockchain technology for from an insurance perspective? So the first issue is actually, it's not too hard to wrap my head around. The way I would begin if I were an insurance company and I wanted to provide some insurance for Bitcoin, I think I'd probably start by insuring devices, right? And maybe devices up to a particular amount. And I might do that as a rider to a fire insurance policy. And I might say cap it at say 50 grand 
So when you and, say device, uh, are we talking about like, is this like a laptop or is this like a Trezor? A Trezor, yeah. something like that. You'd have to be able to underwrite. You'd have to be able to spec out the device. And one of the comments I've got back is, well, what, what would prevent people from committing fraud? Sure. And insurance companies know how to underwrite. They know how to pick customers. If I have a house fire and I have you know, told you the insurance company, I've got a Trezor, I've got some other hardware device, and that's an, a, a device that you've approved, and I've told you what I am storing on it, you know, I'm subject to imprisonment if I lie about that. So basically what I need to do is file a proof of loss that says that uh, this device has been destroyed in fire and that's my only copy of the private key. Maybe you give me a sublimit of 50 grand or 100 grand per device. I, I can see that happening because what you're doing is you're not necessarily insuring the private key, you're insuring a piece of hardware. And maybe the insurance company, this is pointed out by um, another lawyer, a fellow named Steve Middlebrook, in a comment on Twitter, the insurance company would have a salvage or subrogation right. So you track the address, right? And if you see right. something move, then maybe you track that down and you, know, you, you get it back. Well, it uh, sort of doesn't even matter if you track it down, right? Just the fact that it's moved yeah, is yeah, an yeah, indication yeah. that the keys aren't really lost. Yeah, exactly. So there are ways to structure a product that would allow some insurance for private keys. That's sort of the personal lines level. From a commercial level, I know that some of the larger financial players are looking at insuring custody solutions. I have not seen policies held by the exchanges, but my understanding is they've got London insurance keys held in cold storage. I've heard secondhand. I haven't actually seen policies. You can look at it on the one hand, is there a way to insure these things that make sense? I think so. I think you can make it. I think you make money doing it, actually. I think it would be profitable. Um, I want to say that um, Etherisk and Stefan Karpacek are working on something. The last time I saw him, he mentioned it. I don't think that, and I think that's publicly known that they're doing something along those lines. The other piece that is interesting to me is how you can use blockchain technology, sort of uh, trustless programmable escrow, programmable money to speed up the claims process. As an insurance lawyer, what I do is I try to get insurance companies to pay claims to clients, right? You know, sometimes millions, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. Anything that you can do to um, expedite or make that programmatic is interesting to me. And I think we've seen some of that initially in the reinsurance markets. It'd be interesting to see that develop in commercial and consumer markets to direct insurance. I think in the next five years, we'll see more activity in that space. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here for Purse.io. One of the key marks of a useful currency is that it's easy to spend and can be spent. Enter Purse.io, a 2014 startup that's already saved savvy crypto shoppers $79,000 in 2018. Purse is on a mission to make cryptocurrency useful and to save you money. Purse.io gives you 20% or more off everything on Amazon when you spend your Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash. As a special gift, if users sign up this week at purse.io, they can use the LTB promo code to get $10 for free after their first purchase. So if you want to support Bitcoin, support Bitcoin Cash, and save 20% on Amazon, head over to purse.io and use promo code LTB to get saving today. In today's last segment, we join Andreas for one of his Patreon question sessions. 
First, Andreas shares his perspective on whether Ethereum is a security. Then, we wrap things up with something entirely different from the legal mess we've been talking about all day, as Andreas shares Bitcoin addresses, public keys, and more. Rodney asks, Ethereum presale, ICO or no? Do you consider the Ethereum presale an ICO? If so, why? If not, why not? This topic has been hot recently due to SEC announcements about ICOs being securities. I'm curious to hear Andreas's thoughts on this situation too. Um, is the follow-up comment to that question? So I think Ethereum probably has one of the best arguments as to its role as a utility token rather than a security. Um, Keep in mind, unlike many of the other fundraisers that have happened with various uh, startups, Ethereum isn't really a startup. It's not a company. There is no uh, company, and there are no shares or equity or registration. There's a foundation, but that foundation is a Swiss nonprofit, and you certainly don't get shares in that foundation or in future profits. Ethereum also. Um, has a specific role as a platform, and that platform has been the platform for all of the other ICOs. So, um, the token Ether is um, a token that is meant to be used to pay for gas. That's the argument for Ethereum. The idea is that Ether is how you control the use of resources on the Ethereum platform for other applications, including ICOs. Ether pays for the network fees, the gas for running smart contracts, for doing transactions on the Ethereum platform. Uh, I think Ether as a utility token and Ethereum as a utility platform is probably a fairly well-developed uh, argument and a robust argument. Uh, I don't really see uh, Ethereum's presale as an ICO. I think it is the most credible utility token out there in terms of it being utility rather than security. I'm not commenting on the value of it or its use as a currency or a speculative instrument. That's not um, my answer here. But simply comparing it between a security or utility token, I think the argument is uh, quite robust for it being a utility token. The difference between public keys and addresses. Addresses are produced by hashing the public key twice. So, you start with a private key. You multiply it by the generator point and you produce a public key. You cannot go back. From the public key, you cannot go back to the private key. From the private key, you can produce the public key with a multiplication. You can't go back. And then from the public key, you hash it twice, and you produce the address. You cannot go back. You cannot calculate the public key from the address. But you can easily calculate the address from the public key. So, private keys produce public keys. Public keys produce addresses. Addresses cannot be reversed to public keys. Public keys cannot be reversed to private keys. 
If my wallet automatically generates a new address for each transaction, will funds sent to me previously on a different address be transferred to the new address generated? And if one is going to send me funds to a previously used address, will I still receive them? And in which of those addresses will they end up? You know, Yanis, this is a great question, which is commonly a cause of confusion for many people. What happens to old addresses if your wallet generates a new one? So the important thing to, to understand here is that wallets that operate like that have almost all of them have a seed which is used to generate all of the addresses that your wallet will use. And as your wallet is generating new addresses, it's not forgetting the old ones, it's remembering them. In fact, it's still tracking them on the blockchain to see if they receive money. If someone sends money to one of your old addresses, then that's where the money will arrive. It will arrive at the old address. Or in fact, it will be recorded on the blockchain as being spendable by that older address, the private key of that old address. And so as a result, if you want to spend that, you have to sign with the private key of that old address to spend. And what your wallet is going to do is it's going to find all of the fractions of Bitcoin that exist, and it's going to use those to produce a transaction. Let's say you have a tenth of a bitcoin, a hundredth of a bitcoin, a twentieth of a bitcoin, and you need all three of those to make a payment. Your wallet is going to do a transaction where it takes all three of those fractions from three different addresses and makes all three of them the inputs of your transaction. And the output of the transaction will be the payment to whoever you want to pay, and maybe some change that goes to a fourth new address. For every one of those inputs, your wallet is going to find the original private key that corresponds to each one of those three addresses and sign that input with that private key, uh, producing a signature for that input. So when the rest of the blockchain looks at that transaction, they'll look at the first input, they'll see that it is spending coins that were locked to a specific address, they'll validate the signature, and that signature will correspond to that address. Then they'll do the same for the second and third inputs, and therefore all three inputs are validated. So when your wallet is spending money, it's not spending from one address. It could be spending from a hundred different addresses with a hundred different inputs, each signed with a hundred different private keys that are uh, the keys that correspond to those addresses. Your wallet keeps track of all of the addresses and all of the private keys. How can we generate a new address? to receive change. Uh, Susanna, your wallet does that for you. Your wallet will generate new addresses as needed. And when it receives change on one of these new addresses, in the future it can use that address and the change that it will contain as an input to a transaction, so it can spend it later. Why not just have a single output, the exact amount of bitcoins, instead of output zero and output one, which is the change? Leonard, the reason is that you cannot spend part of an output. And therefore, if I have a wallet that has an output that is one bitcoin, I cannot spend one third of that. I have to spend all of it as an input. And if I spend all of it as an input and the payment I want to make is only one third, well, I have to do something with the rest. I can either give it to the miners as fee, that's not very smart, or I return it back to myself as change. 
So that's why change is required. It's because inputs spend previously unspent outputs in total. Each fraction of a Bitcoin that's stored in an output must be spent, all or nothing. It cannot be split. It's treated as a uh, discrete value coin that cannot be split into smaller values. Are transactions with multiple inputs and one output paying a minor fee, despite the fact that the wallets may only be reorganizing our funds? Yes, Miguel. If you do a transaction where you take multiple inputs and you send them to one output in your own wallet in order to aggregate small outputs into one big output, something that is actually a good idea to do from time to time, you will have to pay a fee. It's a transaction. The miner has no idea whether that transaction is a transaction inside your own wallet or between your wallet and somebody else's wallet. There is no difference in the transaction. It looks like any other transaction. And it has to be done on the blockchain because everybody needs to see it, which means it has to use up the resources of the entire network, which means it has to pay a fee. So yes, you do pay a fee, which is why this type of activity, aggregating, cleaning up, um, uh, aggregating dust transactions, transactions that are too small to be profitably spent or uh, spent with a reasonable fee. All of these kinds of activities happen mostly when fees go down. So as soon as the mempool is near empty and the fees have dropped significantly, I'm going to go and clean up my wallets. I'm going to use that opportunity to aggregate UTXO if I can, and considering the privacy implications, or if I want to. And then I will uh, use a period where fees are low to take advantage of that. Um, that's the same thing that I did when I moved from uh, non-segwit to segwit addresses. I waited for a time when transaction fees were really low. Can you explain the vanity gen command, which is a command for generating vanity addresses? What is a vanity address? A vanity address is one where the address has characters in it that spell something interesting. Um, so, for example, I had a vanity. I have a vanity address that I use, which starts with one Andreas. Um, I have another one that starts with one love, which is a bit of a Bob Marley reference. Um, and Vanity Gen is a program that allows you to generate these addresses. And you're thinking, how can you possibly generate an address that looks like that, that has special characters in it. I mean, uh, private keys are generated randomly. How can you randomly end up with an address that has these special characters? Well, the simple answer is, what you do is you keep trying. So, let's take a vanity address with just one character. What does it take for me to find an address that starts with one A? The one is part of the Bitcoin address format. What does it take for me to find an address that starts with A. Well, there are 58 characters in a Bitcoin address, which means that on average, if I generate 58 different private keys uh, in a row, uh, I'm likely to have one of those start with A. Simple, right? If I want to get A, I have to generate 58 uh, private keys on average. Maybe it's not going to be 58. Maybe it takes me 60, 70, 80, uh, within a few, um, within a small deviation from that 58, I am going to find 
a private key that when converted to a public key and then an address starts with a. Great. Now what if I wanted to start with an for Andreas? I'm going for Andreas. So I wanted to start with an. How difficult is that? Well, um, one out of 58 keys is going to start with a. One out of 58 square keys, because the first two characters, is going to start with a n. So now I need to generate on average 58 times 58 uh, private keys. And if I do that, eventually I'll generate one private key that when converted to an address starts with a n. And all I need to do is keep that private key and I have a vanity address that starts with a n. If I wanted to do this with Andreas, a-N-D-R-E-A-S, and I'm counting with my fingers under the table, is seven characters. And so seven characters is 58 to the power of seven. Oh boy, that's a lot of addresses I need to generate, which means it's a lot of private keys I need to try. On average, if I generate 58 to the power of seven distinct private keys, on average, one of them will just by coincidence start with one Andreas. And that requires a very, very large amount of compute power. Um, Vanity Gen will do that. You can even set up Vanity Gen to do it with a GPU. Uh, in fact, to generate one Andreas took about a week and it's used about 20 GPUs running in parallel 24 hours a day for a week uh, to generate enough addresses, 58 to the power of seven, to find one that started with one address. So that's how vanity addresses work. The SIG hash flag all is supposed to sign all inputs and all outputs. How can all inputs be signed by one signature when each of the inputs have a different private key? That's a great question, Pavel. Uh, it's also an, often a point of confusion. Each of the inputs will be signed by the private key that corresponds to that address so that it can be verified by everyone. However, what is being signed? That is determined by the SIG hash flag. The private key applies a signature and it applies it to a hash. And the SIG hash all flag tells the system that the hash that is being calculated is a hash of all inputs and outputs. That hash is then signed by the private key that corresponds to that input, and the signature is stored in that input. In the next input, maybe the same hash, maybe a different hash, is signed by the next private key and stored as another signature in the next input. So each input has its own signature, each signature in each input is made by the private key corresponding to that input's address, and what they sign, the, what's put into the hashing algorithm to sign, is what changes by the SIG hash flag. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by EasyDNS.com and Purse.io. Content for today's show comes to us from Stephen Pally, William Hinman, Andreas Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. This episode featured music by Jared Rubens and was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time. <laughs>